Welcome to the Alliance Theater Podcast. This episode is pulled from an artist roundtable discussion that took place on a Zoom call on April 24th as part of our virtual Candida Week. Now, our associate producer, Amanda Watkins, does a really great job of introducing our guests as well as this event in the call. So I'm going to go ahead and toss it over to her, and we hope you enjoy. Hey, y'all. Amanda Watkins here. I am happily an associate producer at the Alliance Theater. And behalf, on behalf of Susan Booth and the entire Alliance family, I want to welcome you to our Playwrights Roundtable. Now, as many of you know, this year we have been celebrating our new play festival virtually. And a huge shout out to all of you who have participated in our virtual play clubs that featured our four Candida finalists and their incredibly thought-provoking plays. It has been so much fun engaging in these literary explorations and discussing the development of new work and getting inside of the minds of these playwrights. And this afternoon's roundtable will continue to do just that as we welcome back all four of our finalists. And also joining us today is the incredible Steph Del Rosso. She is this year's Candida competition winner with her play 53% off. And today we're also welcoming five fabulous local playwrights that Atlanta likes to call its own. And on this Zoom call today, quite honestly, there is so much talent that your computers might blow up. So beware of that. And if you haven't had a chance to look at the bios that were emailed to you, we're also going to conveniently supply them for you in your chat box. As a special treat today, moderating our conversation is Rachel Karp. Rachel is a cultural producer and was most recently the bold artistic producer of WP Theater in New York City, overseeing projects including the off-Broadway world premieres of Our Dear Dead Drug Lord and Where We Stand. She previously served as senior producer for the international creative collective Guerrilla Science, where she produced the multidisciplinary Works on Water Festival and created science-inspired cultural programming in music festivals, public parks, nightclubs, and more. Rachel's also produced and developed new theater all across New York City. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College and a former Time Warner Foundation fellow. Please join me in giving a hearty welcome to our moderator for today, Rachel Karp. Hello, thank you, Amanda. I so appreciate that. It is really lovely to be here with all of these wonderful panelists. I'm so happy you're here. And you know, one thing I left out, Rachel, is that our plan was for you to be with us for the entire New Works Festival when it was live and in person um, on the Woodruff Arts Center campus. Uh, so uh, I, I will take this hour with you, if that's good. I'm very happy to have it too. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Um, so I want to introduce all of our panelists today, uh, and uh, as I introduce, they will join us on the screen. So first up, I want to give a hearty welcome to our 2019-2020 Candida competition winner, Steph Del Rosso. Again, she's the playwright of 53% off. Candida finalist with his play Unkindness, Logan Faust. Candida finalist with her play Monster, Ava Geyer. Candida finalist with her play Stitched with a Sickle and a Hammer, Ina Serlin. And Candida finalist with 
his play, Jar and Vanilla, Carrie Simowitz. It's also my great pleasure to welcome to our screen our Atlanta playwrights, playwright, performer, lyricist, educator, Will Powers in the house, folks. Playwright and educator, Kimberly Bellflower. Atlanta-based comedian, Mark Kendall. Actor and writer, Steve Coulter. And lastly, certainly not leastly, our beloved theater artist, Mary Lynn Owen. Welcome all, we did it. <laughs> it's so nice to see all of your faces. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Since, thank, since you this is, thank you. Since this is meant to be a conversation about you and your art, I want to just sort of start out by setting the frame and setting the intention that What's pretty extraordinary about this call, I think, is that among all of you, there is such an extraordinary breadth and depth of expertise of playwriting. And of course, you are all coming from very different and particular places and very different and particular sets of experiences, but you are all deep experts in your own practices of what it means to be a playwright. And so my hope for this next time that we have together is that we can have a conversation that is really about all of you sharing your process and brains in terms of how it is we do this thing we do, how we make the work we make. Um, and my hope is that we'll all be able to teach and learn a little bit in equal measure. Uh, so I might call on you specifically sometimes, but I also will just really open up the conversation for you all to respond to each other. The first prompt I want to throw out there that I always find the most interesting to hear from from writers is how do you begin? How do you start making work? What does that look like for you? And just to kick us off, I wonder, Steph, if you might be brave enough to be the first to respond. Sure. Um, oh, this is so funny. Also, I've never participated in a webinar. It's really bizarre to know that people are watching but not see you. So thanks everyone for joining. <laughs> um, I, I write from a place of obsession or anger. So I think usually if something is bothering me, I write a play about it. Um, and with 53% of in particular, that was definitely the case. I was obsessed with the statistic that 53% of white women are president. So I think it, for me, and I'm, I'm curious um, if this is the case for others, but I think it's if something is like keeping me up at night, that's normally where I begin. Um, but lately I've been feeling, I've actually like forgotten how to start a play. I don't know how other people, um, so I'd also love to hear other ideas because I think <laughs> For me, in this weird time, I've sort of forgotten. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I really, I, that's so funny. I got visibly excited when you said how you start because I think I also always start from a place of obsession. <laughs> and I am like also feeling like I have forgotten how to do what I do in the wake of everything that our world is. Um, and I wonder if that's because typically my obsessions are singular and specific to me and we're all kind of dealing with the same thing. Um, I mean, like, obviously our circumstances are very different and it can vary from person to person, but the fact that like the world is so overwhelming and like doesn't leave a lot of space for other kind of fixations and other places for my brain to go, um, that maybe hearing you articulate that is like, oh, maybe that's the connection because <laughs> I feel the exact same. I do too. I, I have to say, I, I feel sometimes like, um, 
I'm writing, if, if I am able to write at all, I feel like I, I'm still in shock. I feel like I have all the, the uh, symptoms of shock. And so it's hard to write from that place. It occurs to me that I feel like um, something that we've heard a lot in like the last decade is that the internet has made our interests and our obsessions like more niche and that this idea of like mainstream culture is kind of um, a thing of the past. But I feel like one thing that's been interesting, I'm not sure if it's a silver lining, but it's just a feature of our time right now, is that uh, some of that feels like it's been erased um, in the sense that when you go outside, um, I can speak to being in New York and having the experience of like moving through midtown Manhattan in like the early weeks before we were all quarantined and um, every single conversation that I was passing was about the virus. Um, and so that kind of odd unity um, that I think we experience so rarely has been like one weird aspect of what we're going through now. And I, I just because we were already talking about obsession and sort of how we find our way into work. Um, that strikes me as an interesting thing that might change how we approach our work and each other. I love this idea of obsession, just because I, I start like a play every week. I don't finish most of them. I've got a <laughs> bookshelf full of notebooks of like, that's 10 pages. And I say, oh, I'll get to that later. And I never do. So I found that it's not always the hard part of starting a play, but actually carrying through and finishing. And I find that the plays that I get obsessed about are the ones that say it's been 10 pages, but can you give me 50 more? I procrastinate immensely. Um, <laughs> I get obsessed once I finally start. Um, and I need, I'm not one of these people that writes every day. I have to have a deadline. Um, and if uh, I don't have a deadline, I'll give myself one by telling the person or the company I'm working for, I'll give this to you by in four weeks. It's sort of that old Irish thing of throwing your hat over the wall. Um, because otherwise I will just, I'll circle what I'm writing like a dog wanting to sit. Um, so my, and once I start writing, then the obsession takes over. But it's, it's like putting on a wet bathing suit, kind of. It's like, once you get in the pool, it's great, but it's like, oh man, when you first start, because my first thoughts are so unoriginal and I have to watch this garbage come out for the first 20 minutes and then a little less garbage. I sometimes um, start from a place where, uh, of things I fear and especially that I fear forgetting. And I think this, time as Ava put it you know we're all like unified the conversation is definitely about the virus and then I also think wait we've got to not forget the environment and wait we've got to not forget this other issue like I feel that sometimes through my writing it's just a reminder there are other things going on in this world yeah. that we need to focus on and um, I think that um, that really, that becomes my obsession. What can we not, what we shouldn't forget. Sort of alluded to this a little bit in my own talk, but I definitely find myself starting a lot from a place of character as opposed to anything else. So if there's a, if there's this fictitious human being in my mind who I'm fascinated by or has such a clever way of speaking, I feel like that's kind of my way. And I'll often maybe put two people in a room and not even know where the conversation is gonna go and I'll have them talk to each other and if it's 50 pages of conversation and it doesn't lead anywhere and I'm bored as a writer, then that's the play that goes into the sock drawer. But like once I found these people who just kind of come alive, then I know I have people I can work with 
and then I might take them and put them into a situation. Mark, I've seen you nodding a little bit. I'm curious what's speaking to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I just like, uh, uh, I just try to keep a, a running log of uh, ideas or jokes or whatever might come to mind and either recorded in a voice memo or a document or something like that. And then when I feel like I have a group of ideas or thoughts um, that feels like a, uh, like one piece, then I'll go in that direction. But uh, it, I guess it's never really like, oh, I'm going to start a play, but more so just kind of keeping a running log of ideas. I'm curious also, some of you are speaking to this, and, and I will say, I think, you know, I, I'm interested in talking about this moment, um, and I'll ask us to table it for just a second and sort of talk about some of the other things that we have been doing before and up until this moment and return to it a little later on. But I'm curious, particularly hearing Steve talking about the sort of difference between forcing yourself to get started in the change once you do, what do you find helpful as you're moving through the process of developing a play, whether that's like finishing up the first draft or sort of getting into institutional development moments, what are the things that your own practices, your own processes, your own resources, what's helpful for you when you're closer to the sort of middle of the play making? I think just kind of getting in front of audiences as quickly as possible um, and just kind of like hearing how it sounds. Um, so, and that's like from the beginning, middle, end of the process. So I feel like that for me personally, that kind of goes hand in hand with writing as if like I have an idea, like let me put it on stage as, as quickly as possible. Will, I wonder if I could ask you as a person who has such an extraordinary body of work that, that unifies you as both writer and performer, I'm curious what the making process looks like for you, or perhaps if it's, you know, different all the time and more uncategorizable. The, the beginning is a mystery. So I could say this and that, you know, and I think a lot of people, what the comments were, I could really connect with it. But it, to me, ultimately, underneath all that, it's a mystery. You know, it's the art and the, and the craft, like arts and crafts. The craft is the tools, but the art, I don't know where that is. I can't even teach the art. You know what I mean? That's some visceral stuff that goes back. I don't know. So I really don't know where, where these things come from or why one show is more popular than another show or why, you know, some, someone, one production thing gets a whole bunch of production, the other one doesn't get any productions. You know, I don't know. Um, I think that discipline is really important. Um, kind of what Steve said, I feel like having deadlines helps. Um, especially when I'm jumping from idea to writing it. That's, that's probably the hardest gap for me, you know? Um, once I get from the idea and research to writing it, I'm, I'm pretty much, that's a hard one. That's where a lot of ideas die. They're not relevant anymore. They don't get the support or whatever. So once I'm into it, um, you know, discipline, you know, I, I really try to write around the same time every day. And for me, that's in the morning. And I, I find that to be the most fertile time for me. And obviously when I'm in rehearsal or production mode, you know, you could be writing around the clock, but usually just if I can get in four hours, you know, three and a half to four hours, if my five, six days a week, I'm, I'm usually good. Are there other folks who feel a kind of relationship to discipline, which also could be an allergy to discipline, which is a thing I personally have all the time. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious how that idea of discipline in your practice sits for the rest of you. Yeah, I, um, 
there's this Jeanette Winterson essay that um, when I read it, it totally like blew my brain open where she is talking about how she doesn't sit down to write every day, but she gardens every day and she reads every day and like those things being part of writing. And I think like I, I sometimes have a hard time like sitting down and, and doing like the work that looks like work every day. And, um, and, and I, I was like getting really frustrated because I felt like that made me less of a writer. And then it was like, oh no, I think that like, I, I just need to like process things in a, in a certain way. And like, so I, I read poetry every day. Like I go on a walk every day, you know, I'm, like finding the things that fuel you in order for like the things that you're putting in to produce the output that, is the type of work that you want to make um, that I think so kind of reframing my relationship with discipline and recognizing that like if I don't do certain things like as a human then like my art like doesn't mean anything um, so yeah also just to speak to that um, Steve your comment about internal deadlines resonated so heartily um, I've been kind of like a internal deadline gal and neurotic, um, but I think it took me time to realize that um, sort of building in emotional sustenance into those internal deadlines, as Kimberly is speaking to, was so key to like continuing to fuel the process. And I used to be big on like, I'll email you that scene by midnight on Wednesday and then realized that like I didn't really get anything from that transaction. It was like purely sort of um, stick and no carrot. Um, but that if I just asked like three actors to meet me in a room and I brought them snacks and we read my messy scene that I had to sort of pull together in order to um, meet them at that time, then I not only got the internal deadline, but I also got the normalization of being with other humans in a room and sort of the, <laughs> like implicit um, confidence that this was a thing or they saw some progress or I saw some progress. And um, so sort of building in like that, that sort of care that also is aligned with the discipline has been very helpful. I have a very nuts and bolts, overly specific thing I do. Um, Cause again, I usually give myself a pretty quick deadline. Uh, I don't think I know how to write <laughs> slowly. Um, but what I literally do is I, uh, I'm imagining you guys get the same experience and you've been writing for a while, your brain, it's almost like it's soaked up it's gotten a big heavy sponge and it's almost, it's starting to, I almost exhaust whatever's in my brain. And I literally will go for a 20 to 30 minute walk. And it's like, I flush all the thoughts out and I can go back and write for another hour or two. And I remember, cause one time I had to write a script in eight days. Um, and I just very disciplined would write for an hour and a half and go for a walk, write for an hour and a half and go for a walk. And someone had suggested that to me and I was like, that's, that's not stupid. But it, it was, it works. I was constantly refreshed. Um, so that, that works for me pretty well. Are there other things that you all find refreshing or rejuvenating or where do you, where do you turn or what do you go to when you need something else outside of your own head? I'll just echo that about walking. Sometimes if I even just walk to another room, something unlodges, you know, something unsticks. I just have to change or disrupt myself. And if I disrupt myself, suddenly I hear a, a line or I get a, 
thread of an idea. So I have to stop, do, I have to stop forcing it and let it go and spread it out a little bit and change myself. I have to change myself in order to unlock it. Yeah, I, um, Mary, I, I completely agree and, and I do the same. Um, I like to call it, I trick myself um, and I play a little game with myself, um, be it change location or be it um, put my characters not in the world of the play but somewhere else and see what happens. Um, but, yeah, I have to constantly change things up. One time, <laughs> I just remembered this. I... Uh, you know, coming to writing from an act, acting point of view, I actually uh, put on a costume and I went to uh, this bar I never go to and I, and, I, <laughs> and I stuck a cigarette in my mouth. I don't even smoke. And I stuck a cigarette in my mouth and I just kind of sat there like I was this bar fly at this uh, bar. And I listened to people and I, I, I knew I was tricking myself, but it was kind of fun too to to sort of act and write at the same time. That is really impressive. I <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think I just have to engage with things in other mediums. I think, like, I, I get inspired by watching and reading plays, but I think I, if I'm stuck, um, often like seeing live music or dance, um, or reading like a novel really opens me up. So I think um, for me personally, that ends honestly teaching out of my own head. If I'm helping other writers, that's like kind of a go-to way for me to just get out, get out of my own way. Um, also have to applaud the putting on a wet bathing suit as a metaphor for writing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I'm gonna remember that forever, that's great. <laughs> The next level of that, of that, I feel like, is putting on the wet bathing suit and then actually going to the bar. Case <laughs> 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 of emergency only, perhaps. Um, I wanna, I wanna turn to something. You know, Mary Lynn, you you spoke to sort of coming to writing from a life of acting, and of course, I mean, all of you have extraordinary multitudes of identities, um, of which playwright is one. I'm curious about how you think about your playwriting self alongside your other selves, whether that is other kind of writing, other kind of engagement in the theater, other things in your professional life. How do you think about your playwright self and your other selves? I, I think also like Mary, I came to playwriting as an actor um, and I also kind of just casually write music and play music. And so the lovely thing about playwriting is it feels like one of the things I get to do that, and it sounds counterintuitive, is not about me. Um, it's, I always joke, it's the least narcissistic thing I can do because everything else is, look at me, I, I've got a guitar and I put on this nice jacket and now I'm on stage and I've memorized all these lines, don't you like me? And when, when you're a playwright, you kind of go, it's, please don't look at me, look at them, listen to the play, please director, take this away from me. It's, it's kind of lovely and liberating and it, it's so cliche, but it gets you outside of yourself in a really gorgeous way so it's it's almost an antidote to narcissism and then there's an old chestnut about playwriting being an exercise in empathy and so i think the two actually marry quite nicely i always joke with people that i've got a clark kent and a superman superman is obviously the playwright and clark kent is the fact that i'm a lawyer and i didn't start seriously playwriting until i was in law school 
And it was such a release from the unbelievable rigor of law school. And to this day, it's a release from the rigor of practicing law, especially um, I'm in my first year at a large law firm. It is incredibly stressful. Um, and so those rare pockets of time when I can find time to write or study writing feel almost like a little creative rebellion against a very conventional life. Mark, I might toss this one to you too, not only because you and I know each other a little bit, but also because I know you, like I've heard you talk about yourself and also looking at your bio, you are really front-footed about your identity as comedian as well. Um, perhaps even more so, I don't, that's your place to say, but I'm curious how you think about those two things sort of intertwining and aligning. Yeah, I guess I think about it like in terms of uh, maybe like the, the audience that you're performing for or writing for at any given time. So, you know, so it's like if you're writing something that's, a, this, you know, going to be a play performed in a theater, um, I, I think about maybe like the audience and those expectations. So like going to, to, to do a piece like in a theater with, with those expectations might be different from, you know, being in front of people that are in a bar watching a stand-up show, which is different than, you know, people that have shown up to see an improv show where nothing's written. So, so I guess, uh, I guess, I guess in terms of thinking about the work is, I guess I think about it in terms of like the audience and their expect expectations. And Will, I, I might ask you the same as well, again, just as a person who's had such an extraordinary public life as both a writer and performer, how do you think about your playwright self alongside your performer self or your other selves? I think, I think my plays advocate for the performers. You know, obviously all plays do that. I think because I had a lot of, a, a large history as a performer in, in the rhythms that I put, there's something about my words that actors especially like, and it elevates the actor. The flip side of that is, is that sometimes, you know, I don't necessarily, like I remember one time this, this, I think it was New York Times Review came out and it was like, the actor did this and this and this. And they were like, ah, Will Power's play was all right. But this is like, and I was like, I put that in there. That was in the DNA of the work. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, it, <laughs> like it doesn't, it kind of takes the shine off of the words and, and kind of puts it in the mouths of the, again, every play does that. But I kind of feel like mine, especially so sometimes I, I have tons of things of like the actors getting a lot of props and that, you know, so, um, but I feel like recently, I don't know, when I was younger, I used to give really into like, I am a playwright, I am this, but now I'm starting to move into something like, you know, this is who I am. I do all kinds of stuff. I make breakfast for the kids in the morning. Kind of like, and <laughs> you know, I, you know, I walk the dog, I write, I'm starting to do children's pieces now. Like I kind of, I'm starting to get like a little out of like the idea of like a play. I'm still a playwright, but I'm just, you know, this is what it is. And kind of what Mark was saying, like, what is the, what is the venue or what is the form that that's going to be experienced and how can I bend and push and challenge that, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I am now. Might change next year. Steve, I, I'm hearing that made me think about your own trajectory and the fact that you have such a bench of TV and film writing along with your playwriting. I'm curious how those things sit for you. Do they feel all of a piece? Do they feel separate? Yeah, it's odd. There's a, two different worlds i've often said that when you when i write it's like you have to birth the child and feed the child and keep the child safe and get it inoculated uh and, but when you're an actor you're just sort of like the favorite uncle that gets to come visit and play and then go back to the hotel while everyone cleans up the house it's uh and like what logan said about 
it is writing comes from such a different place but when it's done i feel so much more sensitive about it. like as an actor if someone doesn't like something it's like oh, it's kind of hurts but when it's your baby or and then it's particularly i don't it doesn't happen this much in theater but in film and tv when you've taken your child and then you just send it to school and they dress it up and throw mud on it and urine and that's horrifying, uh, which isn't too common. But um, yeah, it, it's a really different place in the body and the soul, I think, writing and performing. Um, at least that's how I feel. It's, it's, I think it's deeper. Or so, I, it's just, yeah. in, a, in a funny way, I feel more vulnerable as a playwright than as an actor. Mm. That makes sense. Can I, can I add to what they both said? I definitely feel more vulnerable as a writer, you know, than the times that I've been an actor. Yeah, it's a whole, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that I tell my students a lot too, like it's what a joy to be able to put something out into the world that kind of comes through you, through you, your ideas, your beliefs, your feelings, or the complexities of how you or, you know, see the world um, and have that generate either a living or if not a living, just, interest or conversation but the flip side is like you said it's like people might be like you suck you know what i mean <laughs> you have to be willing i remember i got again i remember it's not that big now but i remember the first my first uh new york review the village voice it was crazy man i mean i i was coming from san francisco but nobody cared hey i used from san francisco who cares you know what i mean yeah and it was just terrible i was like wow there's a million people reading this you know <laughs> that was when i was doing a writing performance i had to get of the next night and go down to PS122 and do my thing, you know? So it's a beautiful thing, but it's like, that's the balance. Most people don't get the opportunity to put their ideas into the world through drama. But at the same time, most people don't have the thing to be criticized by, you know, something that, you know, 500,000 people are gonna read. Like, <laughs> sucks, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's, it's the balance that we do as, as, as writers, you know? How do you deal with those stakes? How do you navigate them? Who, me? You, anybody, I mean, that's sort of like it, you know, just, just sort of hearing the level of vulnerability and the level of sort of here I am putting myself out there. How do you, how do you deal with that vulnerability for yourself? Well, you know, real quick, I'll say, I mean, it's not as big a deal now as it was, it's still a big deal, but like 20 years ago or 15 years ago, those that, you know, more people, less people read the newspapers, it's more online and, you know, that kind of stuff. But when I was starting off, I was like, oh man, that's just a lot. So, but I think, you know, everyone has their own truth. You know what I mean? I think as dramatists, you know, hopefully we'll give our characters all empathy, like someone said, and, and every character has their own truth. That's a hard thing to dig into it with a polarizing um, world right now. It's hard for me to say that certain politicians have their truth and that's valid, that's really hard, but it is the truth. They got their truth, I got my truth. So at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if everyone's saying the same thing, maybe, okay, maybe I need to cut that part or, you know, whatever. But for the most part, people have their opinions. And the real thing that it does is help people get to or not get to the show. That's the main thing. Like, if I get a great review, the same thing. I'm not like, oh, I'm like the best thing in sliced bread. Like, you can't believe all that stuff. When I was doing the writing, performing thing, I wouldn't even read reviews because it has nothing to do with what's going on on stage. I don't even like looking at the video. It's nothing to do with what's going on stage. But if it's a great review, it gets people there. So that's what I like. And if it's a terrible review, it doesn't get as many people there. And so it's less people to engage in the conversation. That's really what it's about. You know what I mean? So to me. Yeah. 
Marilyn, I saw you nodding a bit during that. Oh, well, <laughs> I was just thinking that I, you know, I don't, I uh, try not to read reviews either as an actor and um, until at least after the play is closed, because there's something that makes you, you know, it's really hard to be that vulnerable and go back on stage every night. But, um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is something that, I certainly speaks to me. I, I, but I always have that vulnerable, that little voice, you know, on the show. My show. Nobody cares about that. Why are you writing about that? That's really stupid. Um, so I have to uh, sort of. I think as artists, we always have to take that plunge and say, deep breath. It 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 does matter, and I may not even know why, but I'm going to work until I find out. And. I, and, and I'm just going to stay with it until I know. For me, it's about the question. I, I like to ponder a question, and sometimes I even dig to find out what the question is. But I work to kind of struggle with a question. Carrie, I see you nodding as well. <laughs> yeah, struggling with the question. I feel like that's a great place to start from. Yeah. You know. What is it that's eating me right now? Exactly. Yeah. And what's, what's my unique spin on it? I think that's kind of one of the trickiest challenges. Like, for example, uh, I think somebody mentioned the cake earlier in some conversation. And that was a great, you know, that was a great issue to tackle. And once someone's written the cake, it's sort of like, okay, that issue is now told from that person's perspective. If I wanted to even broach that, now it's a question of what's my unique lens into that issue? So it's kind of what question is eating me and also why specifically me, if that makes sense. Yeah, Logan, I see you nodding as well. Where's your head at? Oh God, um, I was, this is gonna sound totally left uh, field, but I was watching the X-Files a few nights ago to fall asleep. <laughs> we go in there um, and you kind of, you know, you find profound things in the strangest places. There's a, an episode early on in the season and they're dealing with a, it doesn't matter. Um, but Jillian Anderson <laughs> as Detective Scully says, um, and I don't know why this has stuck with me for so long, but she says, you know, some people quantify genius and define it as simply the ability to juxtapose two ideas that seemingly have no connection with one another. Um, and the genius actually just comes in threading the two. And so it's less about, I don't have to build the atom. I don't have to split the atom. Um, it's it, so what Carrie's saying, it's, it's, we all kind of have this ability to put two things in juxtaposition of one another and say, how are they related? How are they connected? They don't always go together, but if it's Oberfeld versus Hodges and the cake, that's one version of it. If you throw in that extra ingredient, um, that's the kind of question that keeps me back to that idea of question that Mary Lynn brought up. It's, you know, what are two things that are, um, disproportionate that can be made proportionate and if you can square that circle no pun intended you make detective scully proud i suppose <laughs> you know i wonder if i could ask you to chime in on this and i'm, I'm thinking particularly of you know I, I don't know your work but just looking at your biography it's clear how front-footed your connection as a writer is to political questions and to exploring freedom in particular so i'm curious how all of this sits with you through that lens yeah um so I definitely think about my unique take on it and what um, what I can connect that even maybe already exists. But I also think about um, as a as a writer and as an individual, 
what I represent and sometimes even who I represent. And I think that is something that comes through my work. So um, the fact that my background and my gender, like all those things really influence how I'm giving that unique take on something. So, yeah, that's what I keep thinking about. Uh, who am I through this work? That's beautiful. Thank you. I'll just uh, issue an invitation and a reminder to our friends who are listening in. We will be opening this up to questions and answers in the not too distant future. So now is a great moment. If you'd like to put in a question to click on the little Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen and type those in and we'll turn to those in a couple minutes. Um, in the meantime, while folks are, are sharing any questions they might have, I do, you know, I will just say as a human being in the world, I sort of feel like it's impossible for me to have any meaningful conversation right now without having a conversation about the unprecedented moment that we're living in. And I thought I might offer just to the group, I have been rereading Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy quite a lot these last couple of weeks, which is such a beautiful book about how we, how we gather and how we find new ways of emerging through difficult moments to build a different kind of future. Um, and I would just offer in particular uh, this one very beloved quote that perhaps some of you know, art is not neutral. It either disrupts or advances the status quo. Um, I've been thinking about that quite a lot in this moment as I've been trying to figure out who am I, where do I sit, what do I do? Um, and I would just offer that question and that prompt to this group of people where is your head at right now? How are you thinking of yourself as a person and as a maker of art in this moment? It's, um, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to think of myself as anything. Um, but I think kind of like going back to what I was talking about earlier of like all the things that have to be in place. Um, it's been like a big kind of like not a wake up call because I already knew it, but like just kind of like a recentering in a lot of ways. Like I, I've moved around a lot as an adult. I've like done a lot of different things, and um, and just this this kind of moment of like, oh, all all the productions and things that I had lined up are probably not gonna happen anymore. Like this thing that I was banking on, it doesn't exist. Like all of these things just kind of like disappeared overnight. And I know that like a lot of us are in that boat. And, um, but then also kind of being like, well, what, what life have I built for myself when that isn't there? And also like untying art from commerce. And I know that can be hard because you work really hard to get to a place where your art is providing for you, but then kind of like reconnecting. And I mean, also like right now I'm staying, my family has a farm in North Carolina and I'm like right in front of the bed I slept on when I was a toddler. So it's very easy to like reconnect. And I remember like staying up with a flashlight in that bed and like scribbling away and kind of being like, what is that thing when like when the money and the whatever else isn't there and and what yeah what else am I surrounding myself with and what am I filling my days with and so in, in some way I mean it's really really hard and every day is really challenging but in some ways it's been kind of a, a, a gift to be able to consider those questions again I think. Funny you said that do you know that book The Gift? I think it's called The Gift. Yeah. And it's about art as gift and mm. the history of giving. And it, I mean, I thought about it immediately when you said untying art from commerce. Mm. Um, I've been thinking a lot about 
you know, it's hard because we're right in it in this moment, you know, and it's hard to reflect. But I've been thinking about what are new ways that we can approach our work as theater makers and also what are ways that we can create space for others to create new works. And when I say new works, I mean both the art, but also the structures, you know. And when you come into this world, like the Lord theaters, which are great, you know, but like they really mostly came after World War II for a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into. But that doesn't necessarily mean that has to be the way that theaters are structured. So I'm wondering, like, you know, I know for sure 110% that theater will not go anywhere. Theater has been through multiple plagues. You know what I mean? And I, don't, I shouldn't make light of that, but you know, theater has been through wars and dictators and everything. So the form will fact, what I'm really interested in is will the industry survive and what from the industry will survive? And is the Lord Theater models, you know, are they the best? Maybe in some markets, those are the best, but in some markets, maybe they aren't. You know what I mean? And what would happen if, you know, we try to think of different models. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And we may recover quickly and we may all be back doing what we're doing. Um, but I've been thinking a lot, of, a, lot, a lot about that. You know, through great limitation and challenges come great opportunities. And I think some of the most uh, provocative, innovative art theater has come in these really crazy times. You know what I mean? Where artists are like, we just got a response to that. And they create art and then the structures around them shift. So those are some things I'm thinking about. I don't have any answers, but I know I'm really interested in being a part of that either, like I said, my own art or creating that space for others to do so. Because it's definitely unprecedented times right now. You know, things are shifting for sure, in, in my opinion. One of the things that I've noticed that's really incredible during this time period is theater is, because theater is inaccessible in real life, theater has become accessible in a way that it's never been before. Uh, through generosity of multiple theaters around the country. I've spent the past couple of weeks watching every play that the National Theater has released mm. on YouTube, on my TV. I don't know when the next time I'd ever get to the National Theater is, and I don't know if the average American plans to go to the National Theater necessarily. But now there are things on, I'm coming, uh, I'm in St. Louis right now, and the St. Louis Shakespeare Festival has been canceled. And the touring company of the Shakespeare festival in St. Louis, which is comprised entirely of women this year, which is extraordinary, are doing Zoom versions just like this of Shakespeare plays. So even if you didn't, you know, if you're an average St. Louis citizen and you didn't plan to go see Shakespeare, now it's on Facebook and it's happening in this exact moment. And I find that incredibly exciting. I'm gonna jump on that, Carrie, uh, with a question from one of our viewers that feels really tied to what you're saying. Rick asked us, or asked you all, how can plays be adapted to or created for their live streaming? I, I can I say something real quick about that? Yeah. Interesting because there's a there is a lot of conversation about like, can theater be theater if it's not live? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of conversation about that. Um, I think it's definitely good for us to use the digital platform just to stay connected. Because if we didn't, then people would be like, well, how come you're not using a digital platform? So it's good. And kind of to <laughs> Carrie's point, it is exciting. And maybe something will be created that's not theater. I don't know. You know what I mean? That's digital, but has a live element that like spirals into something else. I don't know. I think one of the things that's interesting is a lot of people, some people are arguing, well, it's like a sporting event. You know, like you, you know, when you watch a football game on television, you're getting the connection 
but it's not the same thing as when you go live, but it still will let you plug in. It remains to be seen whether theater can in its DNA do that. One of the things about the sporting event is it kind of like it mocks the, the, the participation. You know what I mean? So you're like yelling with your friend next to you while you're watching that kind of thing. And so maybe theater works that really encourage participation, whether that's like, uh, you know, you're laughing with it, you're kind of doing or something that actively engages you to do something with the story and communicates. I think that might be more successful than a theater piece that you're kind of watching. You're still engaged, but you're, you're kind of the silent watcher, you know? And I think that's kind of what, that what makes a sporting event go. They yell, ah, you yell, ah, you know what I mean? But if, if it's not that kind of theater, I'm not sure how that's going to translate in the long, in the long term. Yeah. Logan, I saw you nodding a little bit there, and I'm curious what you think about this question. How can plays be adapted to or created for their live streaming? Um, it's, I don't have an answer. Just two things kind of pop into mind, because I've had this conversation with a lot of different people. Um, and I have this recurring joke that, that keeps popping up, but it also gets to the heart of what feels like the gear grind, which... I always joke, you know, we're eventually going to get to a place, depending on how long this goes, where people are tuning in to see an adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf done where Nick and Honey are on one webcam and George and Martha are on the other. We kind of, and the, I mean, and the, the, the core of that joke is it, it doesn't work. I mean, I think part of the process is us taking a step back and, and kind of admitting, I think, certainly to what Will is saying, there is a, a laden element in in theater that, that, you know, whatever that ephemeral thing is, it does demand something very unique to the active life theater that is not replicable. So it, it, it is somewhat requisite that you step back and go, okay, I'm, I, it is not enough just to, you know, do the script as a webcam adaptation, because that's not it, that's something different. And the only metaphor that's really hit the, I don't know, and it, it, it doesn't work and it doesn't make any sense, but I love live music. Live music feels like the closest analog. You know, you can watch the Grammys as a live thing. And, and again, what we was saying, it kind of, it, it has that element of audience participation, but it's not the same. And the only version that clicks for me is I, I'm a big Madonna fan. Um, I've seen her live a ton of times. And then there's those gradations of how far away have I gotten from a live performance, um, you know, whoever your artist is. But I mean, there's the official DVD version that's been edited and sanitized and cleaned up and that's a movie. And then there's being in the pit and watching her come down. And then I've seen a lot of really weird fan bootlegs where, you know, for two hours, people will string together these strange DVD cuts where it's all cell phone footage. And sometimes there is an itch to be scratched. You know, I'd rather watch that. And sometimes it's just that that feels more, uh, and so this, it, I don't have a tangible answer that says we should do X, Y, and Z, but I know that there's something in my audience lizard brain that sometimes says, I actually don't want to watch the professionally filmed Jonas Ackerlund DVD version of the Sticky and Sweet Tour. I want to see whatever that kid with your cell phone in 2009 had in the pit. And if we can find what that missing link is, it feels like it lives there. It's a clunky mm -hmm. metaphor, but... Ava, I saw you nodding there. As I was nodding, I was like, oh shit, you're nodding. That's gonna be <laughs> next, buddy. But let me let me sort of build onto that because there's a uh, Kristen Kirsten King has written another question that I think is uh, is tied to this uh, and sort of tied to what you are talking about, Logan and Will, which is asking how you all feel about the difference between live and in person. I think meaning like live versus our sort of digital moment. 
And do you think this crisis we're all going through is a catalyst for virtual reality ways to experience live theater slash art in a way that feels like a bridge to in person? Yeah, well, to speak to that, I mean, what I was thinking about while Logan was um, speaking is that two things. One, that this seems like kind of a like ornery thing to say, but that um, I feel like part of my experience of quarantine in this moment is that it's, and I've heard other playwrights say this as well, it's sort of like reignited a passion and a longing and this like very hungry, almost lustful way for everything that theater that is live and in the room can do that nothing else can do. And um, redefined and maybe like a more urgent and visceral way what we mean when we say theatricality, which is all that messy stuff that can happen and and um, that like just literally reminds you that you're all sharing space in the room. So I've allowed myself also to write things that feel like, um, I don't want to say nostalgic, but like very thirsty for that kind of theatricality. And yet at the same time, in thinking about like how can Zoom um, be a home for theater or how can the internet be a home for theater of this stripe? Um, part of theatricality is like awkwardness and messiness and surprise. And I think there's a lot of that on Zoom. And this is a live event, right? We're not in the room together, but this is live and unpredictable. And um, I, it's going to look like something different. But I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that we join this big group Zoom call and I can't make eye contact with someone across the room in this medium, even though I want to. Um, and so that, that causes me to behave differently. And, and I've talked to people about figuring out how to sort of perform your Zoom self. Um, so I think there's something kind of like inherently theatrical about all of that. And it's not the same thing, but it is, it's a different odd form. I might, to keep with the surprise of Zoom, I might turn us away from Zoom to uh, turn to another one of our questions that I'll throw to you, Steph, uh, to start us off. Obviously, anyone else who wants to chime in after is welcome. Kirsten King asks, as writers, how do you handle or process being negatively and positively affected and inspired by the choices performers make once you give the work you've written to them in the process of rehearsals? Wow, um, that's an interesting question. How do I, okay. Um, well, I mean, I think for me, going back to sort of a previous discussion, like I rewrite the best in, in, in rehearsal and in like workshops. So in collaborate actors, that's where I get like so much of my good work done. So honestly, I mean, and also like that's sort of the huge loss we're all experiencing right like that's one of the joys of of theater how not solitary it is how in conversation what we've written on our own other so i mean i think with if someone's interpreting something in a way that i didn't expect or maybe that seems negative i mean i think that's a matter of then the fun of, okay i'm then engaging with this other collaborator mentor figuring out how we can, you know, get that into a, in a, in, into a space that goes to what we were. Um, and then positively, I mean, it's, it's always, that's the thrill, right? Like, I feel like that's why we do this. I feel like there's like nothing really better than having one interpret like a monologue in a way that you are just like, 
I mean, I think, I think what it comes down to is like, if you have a team that you trust behind you, um, cause I second guess myself, like I like 20 times a day. So I, you have a, a team behind you of collaborators, director, John Berg, um, which I def- definitely had at the Alliance, then, you know, you can handle any kind of um, balance that the actors give you, but in, it's just sort of, that's kind of part of beast of the thing. You're just in collaboration with them and you're going to learn things, you know, they're not, they're going to potentially interpret something one way and then, you know, that might open up a rewrite. I think it's all sort of in flux, but that's kind of exciting. I was uh, speaking with Mary Lynn the other day and I shared with sort of on this topic how also coming as an actor, I'm very fond of actors, (laughs) but I think actors are like 12 year olds. They can be wonderful and imaginative and playful, but they can also be selfish little monsters. <laughs> and I've worked, I worked, I agree with that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> um, well, because I mean, sometimes we're left to their own devices, and I'm speaking of myself, we have habits and things. And sometimes actors try to make something interesting. I always feel like that's us as writers. That's our job to make it interesting and make it compelling and the, the conflicts worthy of an audience to pay money to come see it. Um, but at the same time, sometimes when you write something and then an actor takes it and makes it just better. And that is, this is, not, that is just astounding where their talent has made it something way beyond what you had even imagined. And that is a real, uh, that's such a deep joy. Because then it also feels like it's not yours. It's like, it's that synergy, I guess, to use a 90s word. Um, that's so uh, fulfilling to see someone like, oh my God, I hadn't, that's so much better than I thought that scene could ever be. And that's a joy. It's like, again, like children, like I didn't realize my child could play the piano. Um, so. Thank you, Steve. I think we have time for one more question and we've got one more question in the queue. So look at that. It's worked out perfectly. Um, C.S. West asks, if you have a lull in your ideas and practice of writing, then how do you get going slash motivated to be consistent? We heard a little bit from a couple folks on a similar theme earlier. So I will toss this to someone who hasn't waited on this yet. Mark? Uh, Yeah, I guess... um... Uh, I guess like when I want to be mo- the things that motivate me a lot, I don't, I don't know. Uh, uh, I guess like I'll go do stand up, and if I bomb that usually motivates me more than anything else to like go out and write more. And uh, I remember I was watching like an interview of uh, Chris Rock and he said like, if he goes out and like he doesn't bomb, it's kind of like he knows he's not progressing. And so I guess the way I look at it is like, if I have a lull, I just kind of like keep performing um and usually something will happen either like it'll go really poorly and that'll motivate me to keep performing or something really good might happen and then that might motivate me to write more and so on but i kind of see like performing and writing as the same thing a lot of time but but that is usually if i if i feel myself being in a rut i will try and put myself in an uncomfortable situation so steve mentioned the deadline or deadlines earlier so like maybe i'll be like oh man i don't have anything so i'm gonna book this show even though i don't have anything and then by that date I will have to have something and then worst case scenario, like it'll be terrible. And then I'll rewrite it so that it's no longer terrible. 
I love it. Thank you. And I think on that note, I'll turn it back over to our wonderful host, Amanda. Oh, boy, this was fun. I wish we had another hour. I'm sure everyone got out of this what I did. Um, like on a, on a personal note, it was so great to just be in conversation with Steph, if but for five minutes, because working on your play was um, one of the highlights of my time at the Alliance. And I, I really look forward to a production of, of being on stage. Um, and I thank all of you, all of our Candida writers, this experience, I mean, over the past two weeks, every time I would look at the clock and I would think, oh good, it's gonna be four soon, so I can let the rest of us go and be in conversation with you and, and practice plays open. You are Atlanta artists. Thank you so much for your graciousness. And this was, uh, I, I know I, someone was talking about, um, oh, Ava, you know, the, the eye contact thing. I mean, it's a real thing on these Zoom calls. But what happens is that you start to feel each other's presence. Yeah. I don't know what that's about. And frankly, I hope we never figure out what that's about because yeah. it isn't, well, the idea of live theater cannot be replaced because it's live theater, right? Um, but, but there is a, a feeling of each other's presence that's lovely. So thank you for that. And thank you to everyone who, who joined in. Um, next year at this time, this will, be a, this will be a live event that's going to happen on the Woodruff Art Center uh, campus. And we look forward to seeing you and we'll see you in our audiences soon and in the halls at the Alliance. And Rachel, thanks for your time. That was fabulous. Um, those are really, really great questions, and I and I know everyone is um, appreciative to you. Oh, it was my pleasure, and I'm I'm so grateful to all of you for sharing all your expertise. I learned so much listening to you. Thank you, and thank you, Amanda. Me too. All right, everyone, have a wonderful what night is it? Friday night. Friday. <laughs> thank you all. I really appreciate yeah. your time and your thought. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.